Hello everyone and welcome to the latest edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we always like to start by asking what are you thinking? And this week we're going to be thinking about canine pancreatitis and some of the challenges with diagnosis and also some of the controversies surrounding steroid treatment and pancreatitis. We're also really lucky to be joined by Simon, a good friend of mine and an old intern of mine. Simon is going to be chatting about his career in veterinary medicine and is also going to be helping us with our clinical discussion. As always, my name is Scott, I'm one of the founders of VTX and I'm a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And I'm joined by my bestest friend in life, Karen, who is our VTX podcast producer and is here to keep me on track. Hello, Karen. Hello, that's nice. <laughs> it's the same thing I say every week, pal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I try and change it up. What, how are you doing? Okay? Fine. Been on your bike today. A wee route of five kilometres. I mean, it wasn't far, but I was, yeah, drinking <laughs> last night, so... And it was raining. And it was raining. Uh, it's never good. Okay. So if I'll give you um I'll give you a virtual nudge if you fall asleep during this recording today, okay? Okay, okay. okay. I'll just sit in the dark, I think, for now. <laughs> yeah. I think that's wise. So um hello to Simon. Thanks very much for being on our podcast today. Um I just wondered if you could start by telling everyone a little bit about yourself and particularly just how you're where your veterinary career started and where you're up to now? Sure. So um, I graduated in 2018 um, and went straight into a rotating internship at a private referral hospital um, and kind of, you know, moved around the different disciplines um, and, you know, developed an interest in sort of acute medicine. And so I've kind of continued that really and moved into out of hours work, which is what I do at the moment. uh, but I'm looking, you know, to to move into the more referral side and look for further training opportunities. Um, you know, eventually hoping to to sort of end up maybe at a university with a bit of teaching, a bit of research, and uh, kind of balancing that with the clinical aspects as well. So you were just correct me if I'm wrong. You're a Nottingham graduate, is that right? Yeah, yeah. How many years had graduated from Nottingham by the time you'd got there? Um, I think just one when I started. Okay. Um, so yeah, there, there wasn't a great deal known about, you know, how Nottingham graduates, you know, found mm-hmm. practice and how they got on and things like that. You know, historically people have always said that, oh, you know, this, this university produces really good you yeah. know, vets and things like that. You know, that information wasn't really available. So I guess it was a bit of a, a kind of a risk if you like going there, but, um, you know, I, I, feel like I was quite well prepared and things like that when I when I yeah. got out there I think yeah it's interesting isn't it because we you know as a country in the UK we've had these vet schools that have literally been around for you know a long time and very very well established places like Edinburgh and Cambridge and the RBC and then actually suddenly in the last few years well you know there's been more and more new vet schools popping up um, and I think the model's different and particularly with Surrey, the way that they train their final years is is different. But actually, I, it doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's It truly is just different. And actually, there's a lot of positivity about the vets 
uh, and the vet students at Nottingham and, and, and the newer vet schools as well. I think there's been a lot of positivity, particularly about Nottingham, from the students themselves and saying that they've had good experiences. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I think, um, I think as you said, you know, the more traditional schools that have been around, you know, for, for, for a long time are sort of well established in their way of, of doing things. So, you know, places like Nottingham and Surrey that are kind of uh, coming up with sort of different dispersed models of sending their, you know, yeah. final years to uh, lots of different places rather than having their own hospital mm-hmm. um, is quite, you know, is, a, is an interesting model. So, it's, you know, it's good to see that, um, you know, more widely everybody's experience seems to be, you know, positive. So you went straight into this rotating internship. I think that's, um, I mean, we can divulge that, I was one of your intern supervisors, so I, I know what that internship was like because I helped make it. But um, what I think that was, that was a quite, I think that was quite a bold, I think that's quite a bold move for anyone to do that because, well, I think it's it's hard being a new graduate in whichever job that you do. But I honestly think that going into an internship, particularly one that has a lot of out of hours responsibility, I think that's quite a big deal. I mean, I, I would have been a bit... Um, petrified about that I think yeah I mean it, it, it was a little bit terrifying to start with <laughs> it was one of those things that seemed like a really good idea initially when I was doing the application and then you know I think I think when I initially applied I didn't really expect to, to be successful you know at all I've been spoken to yeah. people that have that done internships before they'd often had you know a number of years in practice before they've you know gone into one of those internships but I, I thought you know the application process would be good experience you know try and um I guess you know establish a bit of a uh, a bit of a rapport with, with some of the people that work there and see you know what what options there would be in in future um but yeah it wasn't really daunting yeah <laughs> I wonder you know one of the things um that I used to sort of think was to my advantage was that I'd sort of spent a number of years in very sort of general practice working in the PDSA before I applied for anything to do with becoming a specialist do you think because actually you've never truly worked in well we're not I don't know we're allowed to say general practice anymore first opinion practice or primary care practice you've never actually truly worked in primary daytime care practice do you think that's put you at a disadvantage at all I think it's got it's kind of pros and cons particularly with the if I guess if you consider the the caseload from my perspective I guess that you know doing the out of hours that I do at the moment I see a lot of um you know sick cases uh you know the the preventative caseload for me is, is is zero whether whereas it is quite a significant chunk of a first opinion um caseload however you know i do miss out on the you know the chronic um case management i do miss out on the routine surgery and that type of thing so i i guess um for me it, it depends on where you see your career going and you know what it is that you you want to achieve as to how much benefit um you know the I guess first opinion would have it's still something that I would like you know to do some of um for sure Um, again with you know chronic case management and things like that would be you know a really useful um really useful experience for somebody who's you know looking to go down the route of medicine and um it'd be nice to have that you know under the belt as well so um not only if if I ever, you know, get to specialists, I can relate to the people that I'm giving advice to because I've been in that situation. And I think a lot of people do really value that from, from you know, specialists because they've, they've been there, they know what the limitations are and, um, you know, offering that advice with that extra bit of, of knowledge is useful. 
So you work mainly, well, you work in out of hours practice now, which is p- predominantly night shifts. Is that an easy thing to do working on nights now? Like, and that's your, obviously that's your main job now. Is that not quite um, a difficult kind of uh, lifestyle to get used to? Yeah, it's quite tricky actually. Particularly the switch. It's not so much the working during the night or the, the, the types of cases certainly can be stressful, but it's the switching between nights and days in terms of what that does, you know, physically to, to, you know, to, and mentally to your body. I mean, you know, some days it's just really hard to find the motivation to do much if you've just come off a off of a night shift but I mean technically you're then on one of your day, days off but you're trying to switch your sleep pattern so you can enjoy it and then you know two days later you're back on a night shift so you've got to switch back the other way um so, so that aspect is, is is quite challenging um for sure. I want to um tell people about um <laughs> some of the adjustments you had to make during coronavirus um so Simon has this very cool yet retro um camper van um which he uses to well will use to do some cool outdoor stuff but also used it to sleep between night shifts so that you didn't have to go all the way home during coronavirus which i think is um like ultimate vet dedication karen right dedication (laughs) yeah i was a little bit weird um (laughs) yeah weird too it's a little bit weird um but it was surprisingly convenient at the time, you know, uh, reduce, yeah, reduce my travel and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and interestingly, what sort of prompted that was when I first got the van, I, I was sort of taking it to work just so it wasn't sat for prolonged periods of time without any use because it's, you know, it's an old diesel um, and then, you know, needs to be used. Um, but I stopped by the police like three or four times just because of it being a camper van and, you know, coronavirus, you know, where are you going? One, one, one time I was a mile and a half from, from my house, just on the way back from the supermarket. And then I was stopped twice on the way to and from work. Twice? Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's more, I think not maybe coronavirus, more kind of Silence of the Lambs kind of serial killer vibe. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> anyway, one of the things I'm really, we've been sort of asking people and interested in is, some of your kind of reflections on um, just being a vet generally, and feel free not to answer, but um, when, because I think uh, the interesting thing when we've been chatting to people is, you know, the, the, my 12 year old self thinking about what a vet was and why I wanted to be a vet versus my whatever age I am now self um, thinking about what a vet actually really means in reality so I think do you was is being a vet what you thought being a vet was going to be like when you made that university application uh no I don't think it is I think uh, <laughs> no it's not, not is it <laughs> um, yeah bang on absolutely I, I, th- I think that's I think that's so many people's experience isn't it um which I, yeah. I guess is is worrying I mean for me it was always painted as like this you know wonderful career full of you know really high points which of course there is but there's certainly the lows are well disguised prior to you kind of applying and you know I feel like there's a lot of people that say oh yeah it can be a vet it's amazing and then you do get there um so there are some days where it's like where is this amazing where's it gone um and I'm this is I'm not slagging off being a vet at all like I I like being a vet too and that's great but I think every vet or nurse that I've spoken to has always said but 
it's not the way that I thought it was going to be. So who's telling us that? Like, where are we getting that from? And when we're all starting to be quite honest about the lows as well, how is that not filtering through? Like, how are people not... We must have, like, one vet and one nurse that are just uber positive and they're the only people that you hear from until you get into the real world. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't seem to filter through. No, absolutely. I, I would agree. Um, I, I can't think of... I don't think there was anybody that sort of ever had a... Um, a kind of a negative thing to say when I was applying and sort of you know and I, I typically did ask the question that you're not supposed to ask like oh you know if you had your time again would you do it again or would you do something else um yeah. and you know the response was always yeah it's amazing <laughs> well it but it's interesting because actually one of the questions we've also been asking is exactly that question because so this came up pre-coronavirus and I visited a practice of a friend who I'd gone to vet school with and she now has a joint venture partner in a uh, well-known uh, chain of practices uh-huh. and um, she she um, asked me that question so I went into the practice to do CPD and then she was like quite out of the blue she was like so if you had your time again would you do it be a vet go to vet school and I think it's really hard for that to be a clear yes or no actually and that is that really bad but it's really hard for me to be like clearly yes or clearly no there are many parts of it that yes, 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 I would do again. But there are so many things about it that I would say no. Do you know I would have loved to have had a gin bar and a, a really nice restaurant in Edinburgh. I would have absolutely. I think I would have been really good at that. <laughs> like, or <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like, I, so the answer is yes and no, and not clearly one or the other. And I, I'm never going to slag off the veterinary profession, but it's hard to be like, oh yes, it was absolutely the best thing that's ever happened to me because it's sometimes not and I think the interesting conversation we were having the other day was when it's three in the morning and the patient's coming down for whatever reason it's very hard to make that enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally how, is, agree. How, is, how is that ever enjoyable like as much as as interesting as that case is it doesn't matter that's not fun right yeah yeah and I mean it's not it's not it's not fun for the you know for the client that's exactly. bringing the animal at so three true. o'clock in the morning either that's so you know? true yeah they're, yeah they're they're tired they're grumpy they've got yeah. a, a an animal that's unwell um yeah. and then you know we're also maybe a bit tired and grumpy if it's 3 a.m yeah um and you know you've then got to make that into some sort of a positive experience it's you know it can be challenging do you know i think that's that's actually really interesting what you've just said because maybe i've not thought of it like that so actually yeah it's not it's not just annoying for you it's annoying for them. But then it's the same if you were an A&E consultant. If I had to take one of my kids to A&E at four in the morning, I wouldn't be like, oh, this is really cool. Look at this really, you know, and the A&E consultant probably would not be thinking that either. Like just, you know, so that's so true. It it works from both. It works from both sides, I suppose. So then asking you that question, if you, would you do veterinary medicine again, if you had your time again, or would you just live in a van? I think I'd probably just live in a van in the highway. Yeah. Um, no, um, it's, it, it, I think I would agree with the yes and no. I, there's there's certain aspects that I really enjoy, but um, there are there are other aspects um, that I guess I'm finding or I see from other people um, that that maybe are not so good in terms of things like career progression. I mean, you we always focus on the, you know, uh, I want to be a vet. You know, you graduate vet school, you're a vet, and and then what? 
you know um you know do you if you if you're in general practice is there a, a clear progression um is your caseload going to change you know very much are you going to take on management responsibilities that sort of thing or are you, is this you know specialist training or um certificate work something that you can do and how do you access those pathways particularly the specialist route i think is is really difficult and it's not one of those things where you accumulate experience and then automatically you know say in in human medicine you would progress on to these training programs um you know in in veterinary obviously they're highly competitive there are many people that try for for a number of years and are never successful and um, so i think if that if that became me and i wasn't successful in those pathways i think i could be you know, quite unhappy i guess um you know that because that, that's something that i'm quite set on doing um because i think the thing because you're absolutely right again because in human medicine being a gp if we're you know being a, a, a by human definition that involves a track which actually is almost a specialty well not almost the, the my is. gp friends it is a specialty in itself actually because i because it, it, true so it takes a lot of work to be a GP human doctor that's a thing you know and so there's not there isn't a no man's land of just nothing there's yeah. everyone's off everyone's going in an a direction because exactly. you have to you can't because you can't just kind of stop can you, you there there's there's directions and there's a million and dif- a million different you know pathways and our track is a lot more is a lot less defined for you know at the end of the day for lots of reasons but it is it's it's, it's and then people mm-hmm. seem to get sort of feel that they get lost in this general practice um bit and and then but then speaking to people that work in general practice they're struggling with recruitment so much and my question always is well where have all the vets gone like they're not all having babies they're doing other you know where have they gone where are the qualified vets that are six seven eight years qualified where have they disappeared to and that's truly like like where where do they go but then i suppose when i look at my because i kind of i suppose fall into that category when i look at people that i still keep in touch with fewer and fewer of them are in first opinion practice and you know the people i went to vet school with well one of them is a clinical director in first opinion practice one of them's in Kenya doing a PhD and, and um, you know, so the, the, there's, the, there really is a huge kind of diversification of what people do. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's a whole there's a whole group dedicated to it, exactly. isn't there, on, you know, exactly. on, on, on Facebook. And but things, but so. important, a very popular organisation with a really, with yeah. a really important, we're talking about Vet Stego Diversifies, I think, we're to, are we talking about the same thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah um, absolutely. But yeah. I think a really important um we talked about getting Ebony on the podcast actually, but really important organization because actually it's filling that void where people are feeling a bit lost at that point in their career. Um, and yeah, and I suppose if I hadn't specialized, I don't kind of know what I'd kind of what I do. So the other question is if you were to be allowed to give one piece of advice to any um, new graduate vets that are listening, just one piece of advice, anything don't live in a van live in a van whatever um <laughs> so what yeah what would that be do you think oh tricky um i think the one uh, the one piece of advice i would give is talk to non-vet friends about things in general it's good to get a fresh perspective um on on 
issues that you're having kind of you know in your career and it's nice for somebody to be outside that bubble um and, and maybe shine a new sort of light um on you know any problems that you might have and that's something that's quite useful for me karen can you relate to that um yeah <laughs> so karen's my number one um no well not i was going to say number one non-vet friend she's my number one friend um but that's but that's true I, that's true i think i don't know what your friend group is like simon generally but my sort of closest friends that i see most regularly a lot most of them all of them are non-vets um you know so and that's probably pretty um helpful <laughs> um and I, I think you know it's i've got good obviously i've got vet friends too i'm not um discounting that but but i definitely have the sort of my friend group has been people that i've known since i was young much younger um and i, I do think that's helpful and i think but one of the things i was talking to my friend alan last night who's a non-vet um and he we always joke like every time I've changed jobs throughout my career or done something new. I always say to him, but this time I'm going to have so much more time to do all the other things I want to do. And oh my God, the work-life balance is going to be amazing. And he's like, when is that? When did that, is that going to happen? Because you said that a lot and that's never happened. And I think that's true, isn't it? Like I just, that's the other thing. Like it's hard to, you need to find that balance because it can just be such a consuming career. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you know, during the internship, that was something that I lost, you know, um, but, you know, beforehand, you know, I was quite keen on sports, cycling and running and, you know, that type of stuff and getting, you know, getting away and uh, going hiking and that type of thing. But yeah, it, it does become all consuming if you, if you let it. Um, it's important, you know, even just to take small amounts of time just for yourself to do, you know, something that's non-bet. And I, I think there is this, um, feeling that you know you can switch off when you leave work but actually I, I'm not convinced that that's true I think you've always got a kind of a little a little voice in your head worrying about the case that you've just handed over to somebody else in the hospital and I, and I think that's sort of a, I guess a natural a natural thing as well because I mean we we wouldn't get into this profession or or healthcare professions in general if we didn't care about the, the patients we were treating so I think it's natural for that to linger but you also do need to be able to you know to go off and do other things to I guess distract, distract you from yeah, it. Yeah I think that's I think that's really true it's it, yeah it's it, it's impossible just to be like right well you just need to not think about that anymore because it's you just can't. So yeah when we were talking about potentially a clinical topic that we might discuss I think you'd sort of suggested pancreatitis and particularly correct me if I'm wrong the use of steroids and the treatment of pancreatitis I think you'd initially you'd sent that JSAP paper where they look at using a prednisolone in cases of acute pancreatitis so I was kind of I was thinking about this today and I, I wondered um I kind of I always think you know it's hard to to talk about things in isolation and you can get lost in the rabbit hole of pancreatitis um there was a kind of I always say there's some ground rules that I always as I'm reviewing things I think oh, people forget these sorts of things and the things I was thinking about with canine pancreatitis generally was that the clinical signs can be so variable and you know some animals can be so badly clinically affected and then some animals are completely 
asymptomatic, I suppose. And also the diagnosis of pancreatitis is really challenging. Mm -hmm. So particularly at three in the morning in a clinic when you're on your own, as everything is more challenging. But I did it did get me thinking about this because when you read the literature, it'll basically tell you, well, you can do blood work and you can do these tests. But ultimately, the only way you can really diagnose pancreatitis is by taking a pancreatic biopsy. And so obviously you're not going to do that at three in the morning. Absolutely. And then some people will be like, well, actually doing a fine needle aspirate of the pancreas is not as bad as we maybe thought it was. And actually there's some studies now that that say, you know, the risk factors of doing FNAs of the pancreas are pretty low. Um, you should probably do more of them. But then that got me thinking, yeah, but at three in the morning, what? Yeah, fine. I'll st- try and stick a needle in the pancreas. But then I've got this pancreatic stuff on a slide and how the hell am I going to know what that means? You know, because I would be like, I mean, who looks at pancreas under, you know, cytology on a daily basis? No one, unless unless you're Butty Villiers or whoever. And so, again, that's just really, I think that's really limiting. So then we're left with blood tests and we know ultimately that the most useful blood test for canine pancreatitis is going to be canine pancreatic specific lipase right so cpli as we know it um and that has its limitations so i always i remember as a resident kind of reviewing the sensitivity and specificity of that test and it was never really very clear either there were so many different papers looking at it but ultimately it's not 100 percent specific or sensitive um so it's not a perfect test and in the clinic setting we're often relying just on this snap test. So that's like a yes or no. So we've got a yes or a no, a blue or a white, uh, you know, and it's it's not 100% sensitive or specific. More um, sensitive in severe acute disease, for sure. And that's been demonstrated. I think I've written down about 80% um, uh, sensitive in some of the more acute severe disease and 60%, yeah, in some of the um less severe disease processes but ultimately not a perfect test um and so i think those are always limitations and i think we need to always be looking at patients as a whole their uh clinical signs put together with the lab work um and pancreatitis may indeed be the diagnosis but it's not always super easy to get there would you would you agree with that yeah, com- completely. Uh, I mean, you, you can get, as you, as you sort of said, there are lots and lots and lots of things that we can do that maybe suggest that actually getting a, a concrete diagnosis of this is what we've got is, is I guess, not, not achievable for, for uh, specifically at three o'clock in the morning, but not achievable for the vast majority of us most of the time, I guess. Well, I think I think the other thing, so the, so the other part is the imaging part, because, you know, you know, ultrasound and CT might be useful at determining what the pancreas looks like but again we've it's been shown in a number of studies that the pancreatic ultrasound reliability is very variable depending on who's doing the ultrasound you know who's a lot of these papers looking at ultrasound looking at anything is like well you know 
100% sensitive when board specialized ultrasonographer is doing the ultrasound but for the rest of you maybe not so good yeah. you know so it's all it's va- so variable um and not everyone's got a ct at three o'clock in the morning so i think um it can be a bit of a kind of puzzling thing um i had also um just noted about uh, this other interesting element of pancreatitis maybe not so applicable at three in the morning but i've had a couple of cases recently where patients have been investigated for completely separate things one dog i had like last week was incontinent i mean that was number one problem super well dog totally incontinent that's the problem Mm -hmm. for whatever reason had had a cpli done who knows and it was positive you know so the snap test was positive and now we're off down this rabbit warren of pancreatitis now when i'd done a so we know that we can do the snap test but then we should always follow up with a quantitative cpli so when i'd done the quantitative result it came back over a thousand so most people would say well that's not unconvincing you know that's a pretty good number good one yeah but then that also got me thinking well what you know because they really they were, were like well so what do we do about the pancreatitis and i was like well I think, first of all, in a completely asymptomatic dog for pancreatitis, and I would always make sure I press the owners for subtleties in clinical signs that maybe they weren't noticing. So make sure the dog truly is asymptomatic. And if that's the case, then that's a result that I would probably repeat in two to four weeks time. So I think the first thing to do with any kind of result that you're not expecting, my advice is always, well, do it again. (laughs) You know, do it again in a couple of weeks time and see whether it's persistently increased. Um, the other thing that I just um, noted down before we talk about steroids was um, I, in cases like that, particularly, but in cases of pancreatitis generally, I'm always looking for other risk factors. So um, we know particularly having high triglycerides or high calcium can be risk factors yeah. for pancreatitis. Um, and always looking for concurrent disease. So things like IBD or pancreas um diabetes um you know things like that you know so you're always wanting to look for these other kind of external factors so i don't know i've you know sometimes it's just good to put that kind of context in so specifically um the question about using steroids and the management of pancreatitis so just can you just give us a bit of the background just to where that's kind of that discussion sort of came from yeah, so um, the, there was a paper in um, in JSAP, I think last year or the year before, that had a look at um, the use of prednisolone um, in dogs with suspected uh, acute pancreatitis um, from the time of presentation. Um, so they had two groups, one that did have, uh, that was given prednisolone and another group that, that didn't. And they looked at things like uh, reduction in uh, C-reactive protein over um, time, uh, improvement in a sort of a clinical score that they'd they'd used, um, including things like you know, loss of appetite, how lethargical weak the dog was, um, and yeah, essentially they I guess their their results suggested that um, prednisolone may be of use uh, to some of these uh, to some of these dogs that do have acute pancreatitis and i think it's a i think it's an interesting paper and an interesting discussion point because i think historically people have been first of all absolutely no 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 to using 
steroids and any cases of pancreatitis and also that there might be um uh, taking steroids might be a risk factor for the potentially for the development of pancreatitis right those two things were definitely Mm -hmm. um an issue i was i was kind of unfamiliar with the literature kind of surrounding that and looking today there definitely was some papers way back in the human literature that kind of wondered whether steroids might be a risk factor for the development of pancreatitis but then papers coming later that looked at particularly in kids actually I saw one uh, just this afternoon sort of debunking that a bit and saying look we don't think it does do this um in the canine or the the small animal uh, literature um there was I I could only find one paper that suggested that, that where they looked at cases of pancreatitis and some of them had had steroids in the weeks leading up to developing pancreatitis but I could find nothing that really strongly associated the two things um together and so I think um generally uh there's not a strong link between the association of giving steroids and then developing pancreatitis there are a number of drugs in dogs that we definitely know do um have a much higher risk of causing pancreatitis and again um the ones certainly in the literature potassium bromide um phenobarbital uh calcium um and l-asparaginase were kind of notable but i think overall pancreatitis is not something that we would um strongly associate with strongly associate with the development of pancreatitis i think the question then comes is should we be using steroids to treat our cases of pancreatitis and i just wonder you know so this paper you're talking about from jsap does does that give us enough confidence do you think to be saying we should be administering prednisolone to every case of acute pancreatitis that we see no i don't think so based <laughs> based on the based on the i guess the numbers alone so they had sort of 45 dogs in the prednisolone group and 20 in the non-prednisolone group so there's quite a large number disparity between the groups and the breed um, and age distribution between the groups wasn't matched either um so there were you know there were sort of a number of things that in the study design that perhaps means that the results are um i guess you know need a bit more consideration than just at face value and um, of them sort of saying well it may be useful i think there's certainly something to to perhaps look at on a on a, a, a more robust perspective study perhaps um but, but at the moment, based on that single paper, I probably wouldn't say that I'm going to start giving um, dogs with acute pancreatitis steroids. Yeah, I think, well, it's true. And it's the same with just a lot of the decision making we made. I think the paper is really interesting and it, it does certainly open up that discussion. I think <clears throat> then just looking at some of the um, the use of steroids with chronic pancreatitis, I think, again, really some interesting data about, first of all, uh, autoimmune pancreatitis in humans and obviously the use of steroids potentially there but penny watson and her group and others are looking now or have been looking um at that same autoimmune disease within dogs particularly within uh, spaniels yeah so there is more of a discussion and certainly now in the internal medicine bible that is ettinger um a suggestion that we we could be using um steroids in our chronic pancreatitis cases um because of that potential um inflammatory but also autoimmune or immune mediated uh component to that so i think for me in 
there's definitely a place um, for the use of steroids in some of these chronic pancreatitis cases. I think it's difficult, isn't it, um, in these very sick, acute cases that we're maybe talking about with um, mm -hmm. a very different population from these kind of grumbling pancreatitis cases. Um, they've obviously got a lot of other treatment going on. Um, they'll be on fluid therapy and analgesics and antiemetic therapy and all this other stuff. Um, it's hard sometimes um, you do get to a point where these cases where they are responding very poorly, um, they're becoming sicker rather than better mm -hmm. and you're starting to look for other treatment options um a lot of those other options and you know there's just not enough evidence to support their use um but i wonder whether you know uh, potentially steroids start to become a consideration and i don't know whether that's the bad vet in all of us that thinks well nothing should die without the benefit of steroids in this awful situation but yeah. there may indeed be um from a kind of SERS or sepsis point of view um but also from um as you say, from a you know from that purely pancreatitis point of view, it's difficult to know, but I think it, it's it's definitely for me the conclusion is that you know steroids and pancreatitis can go together. I just think we need to think very carefully about which patient group exactly get the steroids. One hundred percent, but we shouldn't be thinking of them as drugs that are bad drugs as far as pancreatitis. So we shouldn't you know have them completely out the window. We should be having a you know careful consideration as with everything but i think there is a role for the use of steroids in cases of pancreatitis as always we want to say a massive thank you for listening we really truly appreciate your support to find out more about vtx head over to our website which is www vtx-cpd.com we also appreciate a little like follow and share on our social media platforms we will see you next week, week.